0: Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist, and Chief Development Officer at Salary Finance. Hi everybody, welcome to the show, working on well-being. Today I am feeling grateful. I'm feeling grateful because I get to spend time with one of my favorite people, Jennifer Gennaro Oxley, the president of the Motley Fool Foundation. And there are very few people whose career spans the for-profit world, the non-profit world, the trade associations, the chambers of commerce, and Jennifer has served as a leader in all of these. She's led regional offices of Playwork. She was the executive director of the Fulbright Association. She's been in leadership at the Chamber. She's even been in leadership at the Electronic Retailing Association. And on top of all that, she's this incredible civic leader who spends time with young adults and mentors and You know, does all of those things so quietly. And my mom used to tell me all the time that, you know, it's good to be a leader when nobody's looking. And Jennifer, you're amazing. And I'm sure, I mean, that's my Italian mom, God rest her soul, telling me to do the right things when nobody's looking at me. But you always do the right things even when nobody's looking. So thank you for being this incredible role model and in many ways a social conscience for the rest of us. And I just really appreciate you being here to share your story. So welcome to Working on Wellbeing, my friend.
1: Thank you, Anita. I, and, you know, we share our Italian heritage. And though there's, there's beauty in difference, there's also this real smile. And just, I know, mean, you feel it in your soul when you have that kind of similarity. So, yes, lots of good pearls from my parents as well. So I really <laughs> understand. I'm so happy to be with you today.
0: Oh, thanks. I, I think maybe before we jump into, you know, conversations around purpose and the fool and philanthropy, I'm going to warm you up a little bit. And I don't usually do this. So um, I'm going to just make a choice. I'm just going to get let people kind of get to know you. So pick one of these work or play. Play. Love or friendship.
1: Oh, God. Love. Cats
0: or dogs. Dogs. Yay. Summer or winter? Oh, summer for sure. And morning or evening? Both equally. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. A night in or a night out?
1: Oh, a night out.
0: And here's the hard one, Jennifer. You thought I was going to let you get off real easy, right? Be in this like... <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> so fill in the blank. Vulnerability is recognizing that you don't have all the answers and listening well. I love you even more because you know how I feel about
0: authenticity and vulnerability, but I appreciate that leaders like you are just unafraid to be vulnerable. And really that's what ties back to this higher purpose. And in so many ways, we both just talked about, you know, coming out of this sort of Italian heritage and our journey shaped us so much. So I was hoping maybe we could start there. Just talk a bit about Where did your journey begin? And talk about maybe the important people and influences in your early
1: life. I'm happy to do that. You know, my dad was the only one in our Italian family to go to college, 27 first cousins. And he became a banker, a community banker. But to do that, he had to leave New York City. So that was a big thing in my life because my whole family was there. And though my dad also married a non-Italian, which was a thing he didn't do back then, so I'm very close to my German family, but um, I, I would say by far the nucleus of my parents and my brother are they are they are who I am. Um, and then my um, my parents, I would say I had a different life when I moved to Massachusetts, which I like. I would explain my life inside my home, it was Motown and culture and curiosity. Outside of my home, it was classic rock loyalty to a team, loyalty to New Englanders. Um, so they're very different lessons depending on where I stood in my home. But in the end, it came down to the four of us, um, five house rules, which I'll never forget. Uh, and other than that, my parents were so easygoing. But my, uh, they always challenge us to be extremely curious and kind all the time.
0: You know, I can't let you go. What were
1: the five house rules? Oh, they were. And by the way, this is like a little pro tip I learned from my parents, which I now have with my husband and my kids. And we got on the same page because of it. Mine's too old now. I I mean, I'll try them, but he's 24. He's not
0: going to (laughs) care. Maybe he could use them one day. That's right.
1: I mean, we just I think we talked about this before. My children are young because I decided to have children later. So my children are only four and nine. So the house rules are still working Um, for us. They were tell the truth. be kind. Never give up. Tee it up for the next person, meaning don't leave anyone behind and have fun.
0: Oh, my gosh. So that's a business book.
1: Yeah, I think Good Manners was in there. But, you know, uh, your grandparents, etc. I had my grandparents around me um, and, you know, manners were a thing. Um, and so I think that was just sort of understood. But the others were if it didn't involve those things, my parents were extremely easygoing. You could make a million mistakes, fall forward, fall backwards, whatever it was. But if you ever did not tell the truth, or you were ever unkind, they had no patience. And um, and I think even the word disappointed came out from time to time, which, which is horrible in the Italian. <laughs> Please be angry. <laughs> They used it very sparingly, I would say. Um, but when they did, you know, and I didn't get that hug from dad after a talk. Let me tell you, it, it, it was it left an impression. So interestingly, our house rules are very similar to those things.
0: What did you want to be when you were a child? A dancer. What kind of dancer? Did it matter? A ballet dancer?
1: No, it was hip hop, <laughs> jazz and modern, a combination of all three. My mom is an artist, and so she always had me in the arts, whether it was music or otherwise. My dad's an athlete. Uh, and so I ultimately picked sports over being a dancer uh, and was fortunate to play a sport all the way through school.
0: What did you play? What did you play, Jennifer? Share with everybody
1: basketball and softball, football. Uh, although the last time I played football was maybe three years ago, I broke my finger, and my mother said, When are we done with the football? <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, <great. laughs>
0: my mother used the get off your motorcycle. You now have a two-year-old and you need to be done with that. So totally relate. Thankfully, I didn't break up <laughs> a, a finger playing football, but I was a terrible football player.
1: <laughs> I Maybe I could kick the ball. Well, at least you tried. You know, that was my dad's biggest thing in life was to develop grit and not give up all the time. And I did that. I think by, I always say the two greatest gifts I have for my parents are confidence and joy all day. My mom is full of joy. Our house always had music, even when we didn't have money, just always had music all the time. Um, and my dad was just so, so much about you can do it at every level. So it was just almost understood. So now is now that I have young children, I'm always thinking, am I ever coaching? Am I inspiring curiosity? Am I doing all those things? And then, as my mom always says, don't take yourself too seriously, Jennifer. It's the best thing you can do as a parent. Like, laugh with your children, make mistakes with your children. So, you know, all those things. And it's so hard, though. Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Oh, I still
0: want to be that sort of perfect parent. And, you know, we started this off with vulnerability, but isn't it hard to be, maybe it's easier to be more vulnerable with people almost that you don't know in some ways, I struggle to be vulnerable with Tommy because I want to be that rock, you know, that (laughs) don't worry, I'm here. But in many ways, being vulnerable means you're that rock. So like, maybe I'm a little conflicted there.
1: I had a lesson. I really feel you. I had a lesson from one of the employers that I had. And And this person was unbelievable externally, best I'd ever seen in environments that largely had no other women, just unbelievable uh, rule breaker, unifier, but internally was the exact opposite. And It was interesting because I always thought it had to be the tough one internally because I love people more than anything on the planet. And I thought, okay, I love humans. I can do it. I'll be her COO. I got, I'm going to handle it. I still remember the day that she called me in the office and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I mean, I'm just doing what I need to do. She said, at what point are you going to cry with the staff? Oh, my. And I said, well, I'm Italian. We, we cry all the time. I'm holding it back, clearly. Um, but I said, she said, uh, she goes, you're not showing them. They're feeling very difficult about what they're seeing on the ground. You are, too. But because you're trying to be so strong and so tough, they don't, you, they're not actually able to connect with you as much as you think. Now I did the, I overcorrected because I saw what she was doing, but then at the same time, I have to live my own life and be my own person. So if I didn't have that example, Anita, I'd probably walk down that path of not being as vulnerable as my kids. But there was just, there's always been, there's always a mentor right around the corner. They're right there. Even if you don't love everything they do, they're going to teach you something. And she taught me that I had to emote and to really be vulnerable with the staff at the time, my teammates and it really made a huge difference in how well we did together. So do you do that all the time? No, you have to choose the right time. And it's not always easy to do the hard work that we do out there, especially when you shift over to social service work. So it's... absolutely.
0: Right so now. how did you end up? Where did you go to school? Where, did you stay in mm-hmm.
1: Massachusetts? I did. I stayed at UMass. I wanted to go play uh, a sport. I just... I really wanted to, um, I wanted to go further away, but then uh, one of my closest friends, a couple of them were going to the school and, and I really was excited that I went.
0: What's that path that took you into, you know, service and the industry? What did you study in school?
1: Yeah, I actually, I studied hospitality. I didn't want to go into this field. I I didn't think I, well, I'll say this, two pieces. My mother has always been in this field my mother was a late in life career, decided to be a marketing director. She's the only 75 year old on Twitter that I know right now. That's really good at it. Um, I love that. <laughs> so, I mean, so she oh, it was always about um, childhood cancer. That was her passion. So we went through the ups and downs of that our whole life when she was in that. I mean, you, you have miracles and you lose kids and it happens in the same day. And so, um, and all of that is heartbreaking, but you just, you just keep going. You just got to take the next step forward. So I had that. And then when I came down to D.C., which I was very lucky to do right after college, my father said, if you want to get into the hospitality, industry, great. But whatever you do, balance your life. Make sure you are also giving back all the time. So pick the passion. For me, it was youth empowerment. Um, but, you know, pick whatever it is and get involved. He always used to say, just do something every day. Do something good for someone else take care and make sure you're whole. So many pearls. But I take them all in and just run with them. I
0: know. I, I, you know, the juxtaposition between that sort of protected, so wise world and then the outside world is just incredible to me. And I didn't appreciate it until much later in life when I start to reflect back on. You know what? At the time, felt like this. Oh, I can't breathe. I feel so protected, but I'm still supposed to go out and do something uh, to where I am now. And I wish I had just captured all of those lessons. I mean, some of them obviously by osmosis. They're they're in there like your five rules, but the the wisdom of our parents. We were really lucky, Jennifer. We were really lucky.
1: We were. Something that we share. Although the other day I did tell my son at a sleepover that uh, if I came in five minutes later, then I'd have to separate them. And I said, "Oh no, I just fully turned into my parents." That I wasn't <laughs> <on
0: doing that. laughs> and when they're in the car with them, <laughs> somehow I turned into my mom when there's lots in the car. <laughs> <happening>. <laughs> so, but 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 you didn't go into hospitality. So was there, you know, was was there a choice that you made? What took you down your career path? I mean, it's still service, but and I guess maybe it's hospitality in many ways. But Yeah, I love the industry
1: still. I, I think it was a New Year's Eve. I was 21, uh, 22. I had it lucky to get into an amazing um, organization. Um, it was New Year's Eve. I was here in D.C., hadn't made as many friends yet, and I said, oh, team, why don't you all go home at 11 o'clock? I'll do all the side work so you can go be with your friends. And I sat there and, and drank a bottle of champagne, and I was by myself watching Dick Clark back in the day, And, and I was like, oh no, this isn't my lifestyle. And, and I need to make a choice here. So I call my father, of course, the next day. And I said, what do I do? And Poppy said, do generos don't quit. I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm with you, but I'm going to, I'm going to quit. And so I did. And I think from there, it was just about finding your life. Like, I mean, I think. I got really lucky to find another mentor who introduced me to another group, and then it just started from there. So I think change management from there just sort of became—I didn't realize I was in it—but every organization we ever was, a, I was ever a part of, we had to turn around. And there was something about it that I loved. I loved igniting the thing that that makes people want to shift. So that was the start, and then um, and then I had another thing you and I talked about earlier, which we'll get into. That was a life shift for me, and that's how I shifted from more of the chamber corporate side to nonprofits.
0: Yeah. So that's what I think about sort of this fork in the road, right? I've had so many different forks in the road. So maybe we can talk about that. Maybe we can shift into that because I know that you and I both have had very meaningful decision, decision points, whether they're decisions within our control or outside of our control that caused us to turn left instead of going right. And Uh, you know, I believe that that all happens for a reason, but maybe share a little bit about your fork in the road.
1: Um, I think, and I'll keep it short, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, you know, like most Gen X women do, we don't rely on other people. We make our own way. We're very fortunate to have the open door from the generation of women before us. And, but for us, it was a little bit more about money and the what I think. Yes, for sure. Right, you and I've talked a lot about that. Then your why, which I think sometimes happens with age too. But anyway, so you know, I'm running out my career. I'm, I'm, you know, volunteering everywhere. I'm doing all the things you do, and and then I had an injury, and I had an injury to my neck, which was severe, and that injury shifted my life. Like I say to people now, it's it's a special club. If you survive cancer, you survive a major injury. You and I have had, you've had same similar situation. You don't wish that club on anyone else, and it gives you a perspective you could never gain unless you've been through it. And that perspective, for me, was that I had to shift my career and shift me shift to a why. But what ended up happening was I was so fortunate after 27 doctors and three surgeries to go to India. And for those of you who have been in India and you and I have talked about it, there's it's a uh, it's a special place. And I had a medical miracle there, and all of a sudden I had no more pain. But it wasn't um, all of a sudden. They knew what they were doing. And um, and I think from that perspective, my doctors challenged me. They said, "Are you doing the right thing in your life? Are you doing the right career for you?" And I was like, "Of course I am, because I've been on the trajectory, you know, the jet X trajectory." And then and then all of a sudden, I said, "Okay, wow, well, wait, 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 I could be doing way more to help others. I can do this." And so you know, you think to yourself, you're moving along in your career, and I just what what I, my doctors wanted me to do is let go of what I thought success was. And then redefine that—not just for myself, but anyone that anyone that I could support, you know—and the scale of doing that work and all of that. So had a medical miracle, came home, and still to this day, 12 years later, I have no pain. It's it's like I never went through it. But I think immediately I came back, took three months with my husband, and then um, was fortunate to go into the Fulbright Association through a friend, and then I went from there. Then I was like, okay, we're turning around this one. Then we went to the next one, and I was like, oh, we're turning around this one, and it ended up being a Uh, a process. But yeah, India teaches you two things It taught me. One is that um, you have more control over your health than you think, because it wasn't just what they were doing. Uh, And the uh, the second is that, um, you know, I in India am insignificant. And there's something about being the minority, being insignificant, um, all of those things, um, and then seeing those children every day. I mean, you think, gosh, it, it's always worse than whatever you have. I mean, I had blinding pain for five years, but it was always worse, you know? And so when all of that happened, I thought, oh, and look at how beautiful everything is. Just the colors and the entrepreneurialism and everything, you know? So it's just, uh, it's, India is a beautiful place. So it's got to, its hardships like the U.S. and so many wonderful things. Did you find
0: joy there? I mean, I know you had joy from your family, but wasn't that maybe a shift into just sort of this
1: existential level of joy? Really good way to put it. Um, A doctor who was extremely popular could have done a million other things. All he did was surround me with his whole family. I just couldn't, I could get teary thinking about it. I, I couldn't believe it. It was so familial, which is so Italian. And, and for me, it felt very like, okay, this is a similarity I like, even though all the differences were the most beautiful things there, but that similarity actually brought the joy back and, um, oh my gosh, so much joy. So, and the joy was sharing our, our earbuds of Michael, of, you know, some song Prince or something else. And I was sharing it with my um, nurse and she had her earbuds in and we're singing a song together and because we couldn't communicate otherwise. So, I mean, I was learning Hindi, but, you know, it just was, a, um, but, you know, there are, there are ways to bring, to for people to come together when they think about it through the lens of joy or play. So, and you and I have talked about that one before.
0: Yeah, I, I have, struggled is not the right word, but I am trying very, uh, very intentionally to think about joy when it comes to financial inclusion. So you and I are both in this, you know, in financial inclusion space. And first, as women, we're, you know, ignorant, many of us around financial literacy and 70% of us don't have savings. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about and um, and really quite interesting. I just saw some research, Jennifer, I have to send it over to you. About African American women who are focused in that same way that we were early in our careers around the money, not the why. Almost as if it's, they feel like they have to play catch up, which I can relate to from you know 20 years ago. And so there's so much happening to us as women. There's so much happening in with people of color in this in in the U.S. But we're both committed around this financial inclusion model and haven't quite figured out the connections yet between joy and happiness. But I happen to know an organization that talks a lot about happiness and finding joy and closing the wealth gap. And so I was thinking, let's dig a little deeper around what took you to the Motley Fool, which, as you know, David is David Gardner is my hero. I should say Tom as well. But David and I are a bit closer And, uh, and my first, I suppose, if I got up from my desk, I I think I even have one of those AOL CDs that are enshrined in my office from the days when my only advisor, because I was ignorant, was the Motley Fool in the newsletter. And I got it along with my little AOL subscription. But uh, remarkably, you know, the Motley Fool changed my life. And so what was your journey like? How did you end up at The Motley Fool?
1: Well, David is a huge fan of you, that much I can tell you, about <laughs> that is for sure. And he is a joy to work with. But so I think for me, interestingly, I ended up back in an industry that my dad is was from. So that is after coming from largely education in the nonprofit space. But I think that A, I wanted an opportunity personally to not turn something around, but start something with a community of people that were extremely focused on paying it, as David would say, forward. So there was a, I knew I had an opportunity because the audience we would be working with, in some degree, control access can shift the needle from a systemic perspective. I also think that I shifted back into corporate, so sort of this mix between corporate and public charity, because, you know, business is a catalyst for change here. And in fact, as you and I have talked about a lot, it is maybe the, the greatest catalyst of change. And I think the Fool, having largely been an advise a trusted advisor for so many, and on the other, and the, having a sort of bully pulpit into the corporate world from a broader perspective, I thought there was an opportunity for us to actually make some sustained change versus, uh, and I love the interventions that are at. There's so many wonderful interventions, but there's something that's not quite working. It's, it's not, you know, now we know what the something is we've gone through the but it is, it is really, you know, it's so frustrating. And so I thought to myself, is there, and the Motley Fool, I met David through my husband who also went to UNC.
0: And I'm sorry, but could we tell everybody what your husband's major is?
1: Archaeology and anthropology. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Not that I don't love this whole family for a lot of reasons, but
1: <laughs> it just adds to the, the love. Well, I'll just say that in Italy, where we got married, he spoke more Italian than half my family at times. So, <laughs> And he's 164th Italian, which is, was enough. <laughs> oh, that's how you got away with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God, my dad. too. Um, but yeah, so I think for me, I wanted an opportunity to... Um, you know, financial wellness has always been something that's near to my heart for many reasons. We can go into those or not. But the, the reality was I knew the fool had an opportunity from its unique lens to not only and, you know, we, we we teach and we and we enable people in a way that feels fun. And finance is not fun, you know, and, and it's it hasn't been perceived as fun. And I think that's what that's one of our biggest challenges. So I think it was the focus on business. I think it was the opportunity to leverage our amazing membership. And I think the other piece, I mean, we're like an old school membership model and it's thriving. So it it's, it's still <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's still where I mean, I think I'm on year 20 or something crazy. So
1: <laughs> it clearly works, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I think there's one of the big piece. The other big piece is when I had my um, second or third interview with David and Tom together, they were um, extremely willing to be flexible on their own need, their own legacy, what even they see, the lens they utilize, all of it. And I thought, OK, and I, and we, and I did some of that litmus testing with them during the interview. And I said, look, I'm, I'm happy to take chances. I need to know I have flexibility here. And there was just an extremely open mind to go through the journey and be with us together. So when that happened, I said, sign me up. So it really was um, this cool thing. And of course, we came together through UNC. um, And David, as many of you may know, he has stepped back uh, from the company and stepped into the foundation even more and other things. But really, I've been really fortunate to have him as my chairman. It's so
0: interesting because even... Well tell everybody when did you when did you join the Motley Fool? I joined in 2019. So to make the point really clear to everybody listening, this was a thoughtful approach. And so when we talk about inclusion or even as Jennifer talked about her, you know, she's usually hard to turn around in an organization. This is not about a turnaround. This is about providing long term change. So maybe let's lean around you know how thoughtful you were how you took your time to get the philanthropy model right but also the fact that you were so inclusive in defining the foundation and its model of financial inclusion which by the way seems so obvious <laughs> Nobody else has done this. So could you could you I mean it makes me laugh, right? I shouldn't laugh. but maybe share your process because you talked to hundreds of experts and me. but lots, lots of really smart people. And, that's then, hard. <laughs> and then you and I. Maybe let's talk about that. How, how and why did you take that approach and why do you think that's so important? And, and let's talk a bit about your approach.
1: I would say the number one reason that I have this approach is around my voracious belief that you have to partner and live from within. That's it. Change does not happen otherwise. So in any organization that we had to turn around, any nonprofit that was struggling and, and, and or any of the nonprofit work, it always works when within is re-co-designing the future. And I think we all know that now, so much more, two years into the pandemic, and all of the other things that are happening in the country around social justice and otherwise, and so I think for me it's also a test: can it work? And so we just applied a similar philosophy. So when I came in, um, I said I need at least two years to launch. <laughs> <You> can imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute! <laughs> you can imagine the faces at the very entrepreneurial Molly Fool, um, and uh, and I said, look, number one we're going into more vulnerable audiences and the last thing we want to do is ever hurt anyone. We need to be very careful about what we do. I'm not saying we don't take chances, but we need to be careful. And the second is I need to do a forming task force. Let's pull together, so this is out this is before we did all the other interviews, but let's pull together people that are in are in situations right now that are really tough, people that are running those organizations, social service organizations, community based, on the ground. With those people that are in MasterCard that are in some of the other financial place. And then beyond that, I think it's it was, I don't know, from the beginning, I thought it was way more than this financial piece. Even the word financial is off. And so I said, you know, what is it? And I you know, what are the other pieces that either lock or unlock financial freedom? So in this room of 14, we also had people that were housing expert, health, or whatever it was, right? And I said, and this is what a lot, a lot of people have done, but I think. I wanted to spend the year with that group over Zoom, fascinating to do these things over Zoom Um, and, and figure out whether or not actually they could come together. Like, can this actually work in a way? And I think, you know, look, there's so many examples of of times where that has happened, uh, especially more in the last two or three years. Um, But prior to that, philanthropy was so separate. It wasn't, this wasn't a partner in Live From Within, right? And I lived through a lot of those years of philanthropy. So and even the word philanthropy, is it as inclusive as it needs to be? Does it create the otherness that we constantly have in this country? So that those pieces, um, I think, for me, were interesting. I then asked that forming task force, these are people running major things, to make these interviews, to do all these calls. And I think at first they thought, oh, well, you'll have an outside firm do that, and you'll tell me what to do. And I was like, no, that's not what we're signing up for. I am <laughs> And, you know, this is the thing. I may have grown up mostly in Massachusetts, but I come from a New York direct family, <laughs> like your turn, Texas roots. Anyways, I was like, this is not, this is, I want to see, like, it doesn't act, don't we all want to see if it actually is an opportunity for this to be different because it is something isn't working. And so when two thirds of our country are, you know, not living well, that's a lot of this country. And so It was interesting to have them do the interviews. And then I split them into teams uh, at the end. And I said, you know, come up with what your you know synopsis is. What do you think is going on from a macro perspective? What do you think the fools should do? And and I was prepared for them to come up with very different things. And they didn't. And it was interesting. They both came up with the same vision statement, almost word for word. But what is that? Tell me your vision. So financial freedom
0: for all. Is the vision statement? So, Jennifer, one of the, the most amazing things that I think you did while you were structuring the, the vision statement was you also incorporated this metaphor around a game that I loved as a kid called Chutes and Ladders. How does that fit into the way you think about financial well being and you know just escaping the uh, the cycles of debt or trying to achieve financial well being?
1: Why did you choose Chutes and Ladders? So we had the forming task force and it was an organic, it came about organically because I brought in an illustrator. I had to figure out how to bring the emotion to this. This is not just a heady exercise. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a balance there. And so she was designing as we were talking. So as we were talking about the opportunities, the barriers, uh, the fact that financial, there is a path to financial freedom. It's different for everyone and it's not equal. Period. That's the truth, and we had to listen. We had to lift from the truths, which is the other piece that we had in this exercise. And so, as she was designing and designing, then she came back to us, and we. She said, "You know what? I I think this is what I see." But what she actually drew was a shoots and ladders game, and it was a shoots and lattice. And interestingly, the modification to that was a shoots and lattice game because the path is not similar for everyone, even the path of freedom. Even if you have privilege and you can get there easier, it is not still not the same. So as she was doing that, it was the thing that came forward was not that there wasn't an opportunity to move forward if you had certain privilege or education or otherwise, or that there were so many pitfalls and ways to fall off. It was that the connective pieces of what helps someone be financially free or not health, housing, education, work, and money, they're really not as connected as they need to be. And so no, no matter where you get to, it, it's just this. So there's a lot of different narratives that came out of that. But in the end, there's a way, there's a possibility for us to connect those dots. But until we really do, it's going to be hard for, any, for more people, not just a few more, but a lot more people to, do fin- to be financially well. Yeah. So a couple of things hit me
0: when, when you were talking just now. You talk about you know, inequality is a truth. Were there other truths that you uncovered during this process? Or, and are any of those universal truths? Or is there anything that we can step back and say, just like you just described with the fragmentation of all the things that should come together to contribute to our freedoms? Uh, uh, what other truths did you see? Maybe, um, I guess there's truths around women that we talked about a little bit earlier, but uh, in, that, that still falls under that in, uh, inequality umbrella.
1: Are there other things that you saw? A couple. I think there's, there is, there's some truths in the word inequality. Oh, talk to me about that. I think that, um, and, and, and I, this may be a bit controversial, I have to say, but I think there is um, what really came through with this forming task force, very diverse backgrounds, was that the way the system is set up in the US is meant for um, certain people in the US to do well?
0: So, when you were looking at truths, Jennifer, I, I think about a lot of the things that uh, I have seen on the nonprofit side and now with salary finance around the gaps. So there's gaps in education, there's gaps in access, there's, you know, there, there are differences across, in many different ways across the board. What were you seeing and what did your task force see?
1: They saw very similar gaps. So ultimately, we ended up being in about four or five areas. So health, we know the gaps in health, right? We know from the uh, provider perspective, from those that have access to you know, healthcare that actually keeps them well, not just when they're sick. Um, we saw gaps in housing, which I know we've talked a lot about, and I've, I've been listening and following your podcast, affordable housing. Was there enough affordable housing? Is it, it gaps in housing that's affordable, even in how we phrase it, so that it is something that people really want to adopt? Um, because really, that's just housing for people that are coping, not necessarily. Um, so I think housing is was one, um, health that we talked about. Uh, money so many different pieces we could go into that were truths about the difference in what women make and um, that you know all of those things still exist um, and then when you look at work you know there are some employers that are conscious right from a conscious capitalism perspective they are very much trying to make sure they understand how someone comes to the business and then how can they help them the most uh throughout their time but i also think that um there were a fair amount of gaps related to your background, your race, your ethnicity. I mean, let's just say what all of those things are. Um, I, I think there was amazing truths uh in opportunities and singular interventions. There was amazing things happening out there. But more often than not, unless you were in a situation where your housing and your health and your ability to build credit and all of those things were connected. No matter what, at the end, financial literacy, having you know the agency, unless those things are connected, or someone's helping you connect them, or an employer is smart and thinks about those things for their employee, something happens. You have a health issue, and all of a sudden, you're all the way back down. Um, or you know you you don't have an opportunity to build generational wealth. So your next generation is constantly starting over, uh, which we see in many communities. So. I think there was so many gaps. I'll say that it was really kind of hard. I think the forming task force was like, oh gosh, where do we go? I mean, it's just so, and again, these are people that are running wonderful things, Um, but it's just, there's so many gaps, but I think we then spent the next six months focusing on the lattices and how we actually figure that out and how the fool plays a part in that, not only shifting those systemic mindsets and actually helping people think differently about vulnerable communities, but also, how do we help people today with the challenges that they're having, which are a result of those systemic issues? So, I think we 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 sat in the truths of the gaps for as long as we needed to, and then the whole crew, which is very often you know remains optimistic and hopeful, went into the lattices, and we spent a lot of time on that.
0: You know, I salary finance a social purpose organization, so well we're not quite a nonprofit were very much driven by conscious capitalism and this idea of uplifting and we saw the same data that you saw you know seventy percent of women lack emergency funds, and sixty percent of payday loans go to women predominantly women of color right and when you start to look at the data from the perspective of African American and hispanic households it 's like the high seventy percentiles that lack any emergency fund so When we looked at it, um, we thought we have to find a way to disintermediate the industries that came in to fill those gaps, whether they're payday lenders or, you know, fees for education, whatever that happens to be. But we thought that the way you could scale this is through employers. But when I think about the truths of employers, that in and of itself is difficult because they're not all conscious. As you just said, right? So now you're dealing with corporate cultures and value systems, but we could, if we could align this all in a very conscious stream, <laughs> we could gather together employers and and make a difference to a large part of the population. I, I saw one piece of data recently, Jennifer, that just made my heart hurt, that there were 33% of people who who made a difficult decision to go without medical care in the last two years because they were afraid they couldn't afford it. I mean that for me, that was like the, the data point that hit me the most. So, um, so what, I guess the, uh, the obvious question, if I think about it, well, there's so many obvious questions, you know, we could spend an hour just on language. Cause I think the choice of language yes. is critical, yes. you know, and your husband and I would like have an anthropological <laughs> field day around cognition and language. Yes. But, um, But I think there's a a question that the listeners must be asking. So when I think about the Motley Fool, I think about investing, right? Yeah. So, but everything we're talking about seems so fundamental around financial literacy. I mean, we're talking about people who can't make ends meet and investing just seems out of reach. So what's this vision? Is this around closing the wealth? Gap, the financial gap, all of the above. I mean, how does that mission of the Motley Fool translate into the mission of the foundation? Because frankly, I do believe, uh, I'm clearly everybody who's ever listened to any of my podcasts knows, I think it's the wealth gap that needs to close. And I tell the story about getting my first options from Chase and not knowing what the heck they were or what to do with them. And I had a PhD and that's when I turned to the fool and said, I need to figure this out. I'm working at a bank. This is a problem. So, you know, how, what role do you see the, the foundation playing around the investment side, or do I just have it all wrong? And, um, and it's not about investing. It just seems so far out of reach.
1: It does seem far out of reach. And I, and I think it is, I mean, the, the, let's be honest about that. The fact that it is. is—and. That said, I think that we are focused on the wealth gap. I think the foundation itself, like I said to uh, David and Tom, the fool is that our purpose is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. It's hard to do that if you're not financially free or vice versa, right? It's hard, to, you know, one leads to the other. And I think so. So I think it's important, like I said, that people are in a, a space, so we're going to focus initially in what we would say the coping segment in the U.S. And I, and I think the reason that is, is because of what we do well, right? So what we do well is help people have confidence, all the basic education. And the goal is about building wealth. It is about making sure you understand your finances and you know how to build wealth when you can. So how do we make that more attainable? People have to be more stable. And those dots that we talked about, those drivers of financial freedom, I think we have an opportunity to help create solutions that connect them so that there is more opportunity for a family to have money, to be able to do other things. The other thing I would say from The Fool, as David always says, it doesn't take a lot to start. And, And I think that's a misnomer about investing. And I think our point is that we wouldn't necessarily want someone to be investing capital that they need to handle their daily lives. So, there's a balance. And so, I think for us, initially, it's around financial stability and wellness. And then from there, you know, as soon as we're ready, like the whole time, it's actually part of the education piece um, because investing is one of the avenues. It's also one of the avenues that's open to all, uh, regardless of your background. And I think, uh, or your race or otherwise. And so, I think this is a, uh, it is unattainable right now because it feels that way, and it generally is. But it doesn't take a lot to start, and and I think the the we're trying to make sure that as the Motley Fool takes care of people when they're ready, the foundation is helping to you know create a platform of stability.
0: I think that's marvelous, and I can't wait to see what happens. And I've been a fool now for twenty years. So, what role do you see fools around the world? Because playing in
1: the foundation. What role would you see yourself playing in the foundation? (laughs) Um, So, so um, I would member not as my friend,
0: Anita, because I know you and I have talked a lot about things. You put me on the spot here, Jennifer. I think as a member, a couple of things. So one of the things that struck me the most was how the investment world had changed. Right. So I tell that story about having, not knowing what my options were. There was also nothing like a, a Schwab Slice or Robin Hood. or exactly. There was no way, literally no way for me to learn outside yeah. of my 401k, which made no sense to me. <laughs> so I, I think um, one way that, that I could be helpful is through my own philanthropy, maybe carving off investments that go into these portfolios where people can play. I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but... You have to learn hands-on, and I, I, I'll i share with you this example. I was a, uh, um, a terrible mother when it came to teaching my own son about financial literacy, but I did have um, an opportunity to work with one of the fractional companies, and I didn't think about it. I got Tommy one of the accounts, right? Before I knew it, my son is coming to me with analyst reports. Now, my son is a jazz singer, right? Right. For him to come forward and, you know, talk to me about an analyst report on Apple, I thought, who has, you know, invaded my child's body? But what happened was that sort of uh, gamification, the language, the approach that Robin Hood took with Tommy, that made it easy for him. It removed those obstacles. It took away the, you know, giant disclaimers around what's in your 401k, but it, may, it made it easy. And before I knew it, you know, Tommy was an investor and closing his own wealth gap. And he didn't need mom to do that. And he didn't even need, you know, a college education to do that. And he has remained, you know, true to that. So I think as as a fool, I would love to take a piece of what I do in terms of philanthropy and create those similar situations for people who are young um, and and could learn early, because you have to learn it early. You know, we're all playing catch up as we <laughs> age, but, <laughs> but I see the difference in confidence that it made in my own son. And I think if I could replicate that use case and if it meant, you know, having a a, a a secondary membership or mentoring or structuring a men, a mentorship or whatever you turn that into, I think as, you know, as a fool, that's, I would be very comfortable doing something like that. And then as your friend, we can talk offline, but I, I think that that's an important part of how we as fools and as conscious capitalists give back to the community too.
1: The reason I asked you is that that is, there's no one solution to it. And what I've learned in the last eight months of really talking to members all day, almost every day, is that every one of the full members are doing something amazing in their community around this topic. And in fact, a few are, you know, really specific about housing or health or otherwise, but most are training someone in their in financial literacy in a way that's fun, in a way that brings it together. And and so I, I asked you that because I value you as a fool and as a friend and uh, friend first, fool second or vice versa. And I just I absolutely are. Um, what, what do we think we want to do? I think right now we're working that all out. I think this is a solution. We don't have all of our answers yet. Um, I, I will say that um, it's going to involve something around education because that's who the fool is. Um, but I also think one of the roles of the foundation is not just to do things through the foundation, but also to give visibility to everything you all are already doing. And I and I think in that sense, you're thinking about a financial freedom movement of millions of people around the country that are doing unbelievable. Exactly. Work. I think so.
0: that signed me up for that. So <laughs> I was about to ask you, you know, if you could be remembered for one thing, what would that be? But Boy, I love this idea of a financial freedom movement. So uh, maybe I'll steal that for myself, but.
1: (laughs) Maybe we uh, can do that together. I would
0: do this together. So I'm going to ask a couple of of other questions. So what keeps you up at night? Uh, Other than small children.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I can't think past the night with them. Um, uh, What keeps me up at night? Look, I. The, the inequities in this country keep me up at night, period. I wake up every day making sure that am I doing the thing that is going to unlock the most potential that is going to help? It's just every night I think about this, the inequities here and how we have to do something about it.
0: I've only asked one other guest this question, but I, I really wanted to ask you. So um, when you look back on, Twelve or fourteen-year-old uh, Jennifer, if she knew you today,
1: what would make her joyful about your life? I would say her focus on not leaving anyone behind. I think that privilege is a thing uh, that you have for many reasons in life, especially in this country. Uh, especially if you're white in this country, I think you just can't give up and you never leave anyone behind. You have to use that in a in a way that. Brings the most opportunities to a broader table. I think she would be happy about the fact that I don't leave anyone behind, no one that I coach on any of my teams or otherwise. And uh, I think she'd be happy that I had the same joy she did. And what would make her cry? The fact that she's not a dancer.
0: Oh, you are! I was just about Hi. to. Say. You are a dancer. <laughs> just kidding.
1: Absolutely uh, yeah. joy. <laughs> Whenever you think you don't want the pressure of everything else you do in your life, you're like, let me just give you an answer. And that's a yeah. career too, right? I um, so I, I think she would, um, I don't know. I don't know if she would. Well, how wonderful is that? I mean, that in and of
0: itself is joyous. So I'm going to ask you to leave us with a challenge. So what what do you want to challenge us all to to do or think about?
1: I would challenge us all to think beyond the individual intervention that we're currently, you're currently doing. And many people are, I mean, really unbelievable things coming together right now in philanthropy and otherwise. But I think in this work, part of the reason why we've been successful so far and hopefully we'll be in the future is, is how much we are all thinking about the fact that something is not working. And the, something that's not working could really be in that lack of connectivity piece. So how do we think beyond that singular intervention, which is amazing, I'm sure it's unbelievably great, about what is the other piece, the macro piece that actually unlocks something else? Is it just one connection to something else? Is it—is it credit and housing? Wh- whatever it is, um, I would just challenge everyone to continue to do the amazing work they do and What is that other macro piece? Because there is really the thing that keeps me up the most, frankly, if I had to go back to it at the end of the day is why isn't this all working? And so many well-intentioned people, unbelievable stuff um, happening. And it's, and the wealth gap still is what it is. It's getting worse. It's getting worse and worse. Women are making, when you think about our wealth gap to men, it's hard to talk about without being angry and sad in the same sentence. So what is it about it? So I, I think for me, I constantly challenge myself when at the full, oh, I love this idea. I love that idea. We're going down that path. And it does help people do that thing that helps them now. But also what's that systemic connection piece? Because they're, they're, I think the key, we all know, I think at this point, but the key is in that. Um, and then always how do we challenge ourselves on our own biases to continue to evolve? <laughs> learn them, accept them. <laughs> learn them, accept them, um, and also re- revel in difference and not just look for that similarity right away.
0: That's right. Jennifer, thank you so much for today and, and congratulations on the foundation. It's been a privilege to be a bit of a voyeur to your success and, you know, the Motley Fool Foundation success. And every time I hear you talk, I, you know, again, I just think about you embody that saying it's more about the walk than the talk and i i know that uh i know you're going to be successful and i know that you're going to address those issues and in in many ways this idea of elevating humanity and closing the wealth gap i mean those are giant giant things to do so i can't wait to do more with you i would encourage everybody on this call everybody who is listening become a fool uh, and look forward to, the, is it MotleyFoolFoundation.org? Is that your URL? FoolFoolFoundation.org. FoolFoundation.org.
1: And foolfoundation.org. the
0: Fool foundation. Foundation
1: will be launching officially this spring. Congratulations. Oh, my gosh. That is Finally, great. Finally, you helped us get here as well, Anita. It's been wonderful. Everybody
0: follow Jennifer. And thank you again for, for joining us today. And best wishes. Let me know whatever I can do to help with the foundation. Thank you. Go on. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.